So it is that which wounds us that often eventually heals us. The problem that, that pulls us down in early life is often the, the thing that transforms us in later life. from a talk given by Terence McBride to the Jung Society of Melbourne. And welcome to the Society's podcast. I'm Ariel Moy. The Jung Society offers a space for the exploration and development of Jungian ideas and practice. We offer talks on the third Friday evening of every month, as well as courses and workshops, a Jungian library, a newsletter and discussion groups. Please visit our website at jungsocietymelbourne.com or our Facebook page. Today we'll be listening to Terence McBride's The Archetype of the Wounded Healer. Terence, a Jungian analyst and a Buddhist counsellor with a background in theology, has lectured widely around Australia on Jungian ideas. Today's talk is an exploration of ancient rites of healing and their relationship with our modern-day approaches to therapy and well-being. With this talk, Terence used a number of images, so we've provided some relevant imagery on our Facebook page. We hope you enjoy. I've been invested with the sound and the authority to speak, I suppose. Um, I should like to thank you, um, Phil, for your warm words of welcome. And, uh, I'm, and just to say how very happy I am to, to be here tonight, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, and also, I, I should say, what a beautiful venue you've got. We've got nothing like this in Sydney. <laughs> Um, now, tonight I'm, I'm going to talk about the archetype of the wounded healer. And what I want to do is explore the archetype of illness and healing, of illness and healing experiences which belong together as two sides of one coin, healing and illness. But before we start, I, I'd just like to say a word about the word archetype itself. It, it's one of Jung's words that we all use, and it's really uh, good at times just to look at what it means. It comes from two Greek words, arche and tupos, and it means the primordial first or chief, like archbishop, the first, first bishop. So the, the primordial or the chief, and tupos means imprint. It was the stamp, but it was also the imprint made by the stamp. So it's a primordial imprint in the psyche, uh, as, as Jung uses it. The word was resurrected by C.G. Jung in 1919 and he took it from writers at the beginning of the Christian era, about the second century AD. So for example, you read in Irenaeus that uh, the creator of the world did not make these things of the world, that is, from himself, but from archetypes, from primordial imprints outside himself. St. Augustine in the 5th century talks about the pr principal ideas, the same sort of thing, principal ideas, primordial imprints. And these are contained, he said, in the divine understanding. Dionysius the Areopagite in the 6th century uh, talks about the immaterial archetypes and, the, and that God is an archetypal stone. So the word comes from the very beginnings of our era. Now Jung talks about these primordial imprints, these eternally valid ideas and images, 
which emerge from the human psyche from time to time. So, for example, he never made a list of archetypes, and people are always saying, oh, where, where's a list of the archetypes? But it's, it's just interesting to hear of some of the ones he talked about. For example, the mother archetype, the father archetype, the hero archetype in every fairy tale. The hero archetype is expressed in every film. James Bond is an expression in our culture of the hero archetype, if you like. Uh, the death-rebirth archetype, primordial ideas that recur and recur, the God archetype, the idea of God, the Saviour archetype, and the archetype of individuation, uh, the spiritual journey, the inner journey, or whatever you want to call that. But there's a primordial idea there that comes up an, uh, from time to time. So they are primordial imprints or images in the deepest levels of the unconscious mind. In 1946, Jung made a distinction between the archetype itself, per se, and he said that's a force deep in the human psyche which is completely unknowable, and the manifested archetype, and that's the, this unknowable psychic energy which expresses itself in imagery or symbols, so that the that deep archetypal force in the psyche expresses itself through our dreams, visions, fairy tales, religious experience and cultural patterns. It gets expressed. The concept archetype is a bit like, to my mind, it's like what electricity is. No one knows quite what electricity is, but we all know it by its effects. I mean, it, it, uh, we see the power of electricity coming through the lighting system, through hopefully through the slide projector in a few minutes. Um, we see the effects of this invisible, unknowable kind of force, electricity. Uh, and we see the effects of that in our lives. And that's what the, uh, the concept of the archetype is like. We see it in our dreams occasionally. And the archetype that I want to talk about tonight is the one of illness and healing, or, or the wounded healer. And it's the basic, or the, and we're looking at basic primordial ideas and patterns of action and reaction regarding illness and healing, which are found in the unconscious. And by illness, I mean organic illness and or psychological woundedness. So, so what I want to do then in talking about the archetype of the wounded healer is to explore the primordial imagery behind our experience of sickness and healing, psychological or organic illness, and present something of the dim background to what we do today in the healing arts of whatever kind. And I want to accomplish this by taking us back some centuries and present an account of how people, how sick people, went about seeking healing in the Greek culture from the 6th century BC until the 4th century AD. So we'll go back in time and we'll experience what they experienced to seek healing in Greece from the 6th century BC to the 4th century AD. Then I shall draw out of this account what is still true and valid for us today regarding the nature of sickness and healing. And I'll be giving many examples of dreams of people struggling with illness and facing death. Now, my source for this will be a book written by Pausanias. It's called Guide to Greece, uh, Central Greece. He was a, a doctor who travelled around Greece about 165 AD and he was 
looking at what was at the ruins and monuments and temples of Greece and reporting what he saw. And so he often tells us, you know, the statue of Zeus in, um, in Athens was still in good shape and uh, this sort of information. And one of the pieces of information he gives us is what about the temples of Asclepius, the god of healing. And that's the part I'd like to talk about tonight. So that when people were sick during this time, 6th century BC to the 4th century AD, they would go along to, the, to a temple of Asclepius, the god of healing, and there they would seek their cure. There were many Asclepian sanctuaries scattered throughout Greece and the ancient world. The most famous would be Epidaurus, and you can still see the ruins there today. But the, a very famous one on the island of Cos, Delphi, Pergamo, Athens, and there's one in Rome that I'll be talking about later on and show a slide uh, which concerns it. Perhaps we could look at the first few slides. Um, just, I put this one in because I think this gives a feeling for the world of the archetypes. Uh, that's what I'm, uh, we're talking about the dim background. We're talking about something beyond our everyday experience. This is it, the world as it is. This is a medieval uh, engraving. The lights are fine, thank you. Um, this is a medieval engraving. There's the everyday world, the trees, the stars, everything's right, uh, the houses. But we want to look somewhat beyond the world of phenomena and see what goes on behind, what, what's the background to our experience of healing and our experience of illness. This, of course, is a reference to the vision of Ezekiel where he saw the chariot wheels in the heavens, uh, the fiery wheels. So it's just a, a feeling of moving into the material, looking behind our daily experience. The next slide, please. This is... Uh, from the temple at Delphi, and this is the, um, that's right, leave the lights as it is because this will do for a minute. Um, I've gone ahead of myself with this, this slide. Let's talk about just going to one of these temples and then I can explain these slides then. Now, what you do, you, you, so you are sick. So you go along to one of these uh, uh, temples of Asclepius. Say we go to Epidaurus. First of all, on arrival, there's a bath of purification to be had. You, you have this bath of purification in the sacred springs at the temple. And we're told by Pausanias and Plutarch, Plutarch also reports this, that these baths are not only to cleanse the bodies, but to cleanse the body, but also to free the soul from the body. And it also adds a rather fascinating word, a Greek word, meaning that this experience was dream producing. Now, when you realize that one word for soul in Greek is psuche or psyche, so that psychology becomes the study of soul, one, we can appreciate the reasoning here that the daily cares of the world are left behind. You get purified in the sacred spring and the soul is being released for its kind of activity and its activity, of course, is dreaming. Then there are preliminary sacrifices. So you've been purified in the sacred springs. Then you have the preliminary sacrifices to the gods, especially Asclepius, who was the son of Apollo and mortal Coronis. He was the divine physician. There'd also be sacrifices to Apollo himself, whose motto was the wounder heals, which fits in very much with our theme tonight. 
Then they would be taken into the very centre of the temple, into the abaton, the very sacred part of the temple, and there they would spend the night sleeping in the temple. And this was called the incubation. You would spend the night in the temple sleeping, surrounded by statues of the gods. And if you listen to some of the names of the gods, it's rather interesting. Uh, Hypnos and Oniros. Hypnos was the god of sleep, whence we derive our word hypnotherapy, hypnosis. Uh, Oniros is the god of dreaming. So you'd pay your respects to the god of sleep and the god of dreaming. You'd pay your respects to the goddess Hygieia, Hygieia, whence we derive our word uh, hygiene, and she was the goddess of health, and panacea, the goddess of cure, the, the, the thing that cures all. We still have these words in our language. And then you would spend the night in this sacred place. You would incubate. We often sleep on something, and that's what they were doing, basically. You slept on a couch in this uh, sacred place, and the, the word for a couch is interesting. It's clean whence we derive the word clinic. So our modern clinics actually come from this basic experience of healing in Greece. Now during this sleep in the sanctuary, the patient hoped for a dream or a vision, and especially they hoped that Asclepius, the god of healing, would appear to them and touch the affected bodily part. Now the records tell us that Asclepius appeared in various forms. Sometimes he appeared as a bearded man holding a snake-entwined staff. Other times he appeared as a young boy other times as a snake itself, and sometimes as a dog. And such a dream was a really sure sign that you were going to be cured, that you would find the God's favour and you would be healed. The process of healing was on, on its way. Then the, the incubant, the patient, would be enjoined to write down their dream carefully. That's reminiscent of what we do these days in Jungian and and uh, Jungian, and uh, Jungian analysis and psychoanalysis. The dream must be recorded carefully. Then the, there are attendants at the temple, the priests, and they were called therapeutai, whence we derive our word the therapists. They were, and they were attendants at the temple. They were not doctors. They just attended the god Asclepius and they helped the, the patients in their activities in the temple. The sources vary as to whether these uh, therapeutae actually interpreted the dreams, but they certainly listened to the dreams. Uh, and whether or not they interpreted the dream doesn't really matter because it's the dream itself that does the healing work. Um, it's not the interpretation. Interpretations don't really cure us. Oftentimes uh, people have a dream and they intuitively or instinctively understand what it's about and they, they carry out the message of the dream somehow. Some way, some way, and by the time they get to their analytical session, it's all uh, fait accompli. But in talking about it in the analytical session, what you do is make it more conscious so the ego can understand more and appreciate more what's happening in the psyche. And then at the end of the cure, the patient would have to give a thank offering, and they'd have a year in which to do this. They'd have to either give money to the temple or uh, they'd have to write a literary work and we get a lot of the hymns written to Asclepius and the other gods came from this source. Or they would have to uh, make a votive offering and a lot of the bas reliefs in the British Museum come from that source. And I've got some slides of them here tonight. Or another form was to sacrifice a cock to, to Asclepius and that was a sure sign of the cure. 
It's interesting that when Socrates was put to death in 399 BC, he was given the hemlock, and his last words referred to this. The, uh, as you read in, in uh, Plato's uh, book, The Last Days of Socrates, the hemlock, the poison, was uh, taking over his body. His body was becoming cold, and it says here, the coldness was spreading about as far as his waist. And Socrates uncovered his face, for he had covered it up, and he said, and these were his last words, Crito, we ought to offer a cock to Asclepius. See to it and don't forget. So Socrates, in a rather ironic way, was saying, I've been cured of life. I'm going to die. And he was thanking Asclepius by offering the cock as a sacrifice. Um, there's one interesting variation that I'd just like to quickly run through at another shrine. It, it has some motives that uh, I think will enrich our material when we're, when we're talking about the uh, meaning of this later on. At, at a, a shrine of Trophonius, who was just uh, another form of Asclepius, really, I mean, it's just that the local god of healing was Trophonius, not Asclepius. So at the shrine of Trophonius uh, and Hyakina at Lebadia, Lebadia, um, which Pausanias also reports. There's just a few interesting variations. After the bathing and the sacrifices and the anointings, so it's the same as the first account, the, pa the patient was dressed in white linen and given a ladder and descended down into a cave. And then he has to go feet first through a hole into a another dark cave which was inhabited by sacred snakes. Which is no mean feat, I would imagine. <laughs> He would then throw honey cakes as offerings to the snakes to propitiate them. And then and the, then he would, in that cave, he would experience his oracle or vision or dream. And we're told that some people heard something, other people saw something about their life and their sickness. And there they stayed for several days. And it's really interesting, on their return, it says they're in a, quite a shaken condition, as you could imagine. Um, Pausanias says that they're possessed with terror and, um, and then he must relate, again he must relate everything to those priests, the uh, Therapeutae. And he's put on the throne of memory to remember what happened. And the friends take him to a recovery, his friends then come and rescue him and take him to a house of recovery uh, and it says uh, rather comically, till the power to laugh returns. So it's a very serious business going down into these caves. And then he must again record what happened on a wooden tablet. Perhaps we might look at the slides about this now and just... Uh, can we have the lights off, please? And this is... Oh, I could talk about that one. This is the, uh, the Tholos at Delphi. So it's part of the, uh, the, uh, the Temple of Asclepius. They don't really know a lot about these, the, the, these uh, excavations, but they're still guessing what's what. But that's the, the round tholos at the very centre of the uh, temple. Um, there's something else about that. No one quite knows what it was all about, uh, but it seems there's water flowing at the, at the base of that. Perhaps we could just move on. Um, so there's an overall plan of the temple at Epidaurus. They're still not really sure what's what here either. There's the tholos we were looking at. Only this is Epidaurus now, not Delphi like the last one. Um, the Temple of Apollo. So I can't say much more about that. There's, uh, they don't really know 
where things were. Uh, what Pausanias describes doesn't quite fit in with this, uh, with the work, the excavation work that's being done. All right, we could move on then to the next one. Oops, he's lost his head. Um, that's Asclepius. So that's to give you a feeling like when they entered the temple that these kind of statues would be there to remind them of the presence of the gods. And that before these statues, they'd make their votive offerings, they'd make their sacrifices, preliminary sacrifices, before they'd actually spend the night in the temple. Can we move on, please, to the next one? Yeah. That's Hygieia, Hygieia, Hygiene. Um, See the snake? We're going to talk about the serpent later on, so I'll just let you look at these at this stage, and we'll be talking about all these motifs later on. Um, that's uh, possibly a, an epiphany of the God as a child, as a healing child. Sometimes a, a child in a dream ha has a healing influence on us, and that's, that's the kind of uh, epiphany of the God. Sometimes he appears as a snake. All right, the next slide, please. This is just to give you a feeling for... Uh, what the person would see when they went into one of these temples. This is the god Asclepius and his family. See, the gods are of a greater stature than the human beings seeking, they're the people seeking healing. There's Asclepius, the god of healing, with his staff with the snake entwined around it. And uh, his wife Epione in the background there. His two sons, the surgeons, uh, what's their name? Machaon and... Podolyrus. They're mentioned in the uh, Trojan Wars. And then Hygieia, Aegle, Panacea. These three daughters. Okay. That's, uh, that's a votive offering, and we'll come back to this one later. Here's the, very much the, the idea of the serpent that uh, wounds us becomes also the God who heals us. So this is like the patient on the clean A or the couch, hoping for their, this is probably a, one of the thera, therapists or the therapeutoi. Um, and there's the patient on the couch bringing his, his woundedness and, and perhaps this is the dream of the God coming and touching the affected part. All right, the next slide please. That's uh, Hygieia and uh, Asclepius again, and notice that um, up on the left, your left up there, the tree of life, so that uh, the vital forces in the personality are being looked after. The tree of life is able to, do, to grow. Uh, the snake, the instincts are being fed with the bread, and that's his, his staff again, the staff of his healing authority. Next slide, please. That's another votive offering. You see the serpent there. Um, that could be Hygieia. I'm not sure. There, there wasn't enough information on that one. But it, it gives you a feeling for these votive offerings we're talking about. They had to actually make that and hang that up. And that, that custom has, has continued in Europe in the cathedrals. You, you see where um, people have gone to various shrines around Europe and they've left their crutches there or they've left little paintings of themselves being cured by the Virgin Mary or, or, or whatever, or one of the saints. And so that, that idea of leaving a votive offering at the shrine still continues. Right, so now, um, are there any questions or problems at this stage? Or? 
I mean, we've basically just looked at what Greek people did uh, in the centuries before and after Christ when they were sick and how they sought healing. And now it remains to look at some sort of psychological interpretation of that material. And what I want to do, why I presented that was to explore some of the imagery and symbolism which is behind the art of healing as we practice it still today. So I mentioned, for example, the derivations of some of our own our modern words from words which were used in the Asclepian rite because the words we use today unconsciously carry hidden meanings, within, hidden, sorry, hidden images, hidden images within their meanings. Paul Hermann, a Greek philologist who wrote in 1880, a, a German philologist, so before uh, Freud and Jung were talking about the unconscious, says that old word meanings have an after effect, chiefly imperceptible within the dark chambers of the unconscious of the soul. An Edinger uh, New York analyst speaks about etymology as being the unconscious side of language and, and hence he says it's relevant in psychological studies. So that's why we, we looked at some of the etym etymology of some of our own words that refer back to Asclepius's time. Now I don't necessarily ask you to believe the literal truth of these accounts though I do think they're well document documented um, and I believe that one can make a case for the reality of these inner experiences that people were having in those days. But to just experience the symbolical truth of these accounts, there's something that we can learn about the experience of sickness and the experience of healing from these accounts. So I'll briefly draw out the meaning of some of the symbols and show the relevance that they have for us today. And I'll do it under four headings. We'll talk about introversion, the need for introversion, the symbolism of the serpent or the snake, uh, the role of the dream in the process because they use dreams in their, in their healing work and the role of the healer. Now the introversion aspect is very clear. The sick person had to leave the daily cares behind and introvert, sleep in a sacred shrine. They had to, in the second account, they had to actually go down a ladder and spend the time in a dark cave full of serpents to which they'd fed their honey cakes. Now, this is, for the ancients, this was a very well-known theme. It's the famous descent into the underworld, the descensus ad inferos, the catabasis. Um, you see it, we, I mean, we see this so often in, our, in our, uh, the history of symbols throughout the ages, and that's what we might look at in some of the slides in a minute. Um, in Dante's Divine Comedy, for example, you get this feeling at the beginning that there's a, an introversion. He goes away from the cares of the world. And the first lines of the Divine Comedy uh, go like this. Midway upon the journey of our life, I, fi I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. So there's some sense of confusion some sense of losing the way, losing one's orientation, getting depressed and finding oneself in the forest, which is always a symbol, say in the fairy tales, of being caught in the unconscious. Dante encounters animals, the panther, the lion and the she-wolf, the whole world of instinct. And he eventually descends right down into the underworld. He goes through the gates of Hades, all hope abandoned, ye who enter in. And then he goes right down into the underworld and sees uh, the, the triple-headed devil 
We'll see some slides demonstrating that in a minute. And then Faust, again, on the point of suicide. Here's a, a dried-up academic uh, sitting in his room feeling really dissatisfied. Uh, you know, he says, I'm a doctor of philosophy, theology, and everything else, but what good does it do me? And so he's playing with this cup of poison. He's looking for something deeper in life, looking for some connection with the soul, some connection with the shadow world. Um, and there he makes the pact with the devil and has his whole uh, exploration of the seamier side of life and his, the witch's kitchen, the disastrous affair with Gretchen, etc. So he really ex gets right into the world of the shadow and the world of instinct. So psychologically, what we're looking at is now a descent into the underworld. Uh, as we've seen in Dante and Faust, for example, there's many, many more examples. Psychologically, it's like a depression or a severe physical illness which pulls us out of life and life activity. And it forces us to go in, to go deeper. It forces us to go into the dark recesses of our own being where we're surrounded by the dark, cold-blooded, instinctual, snake-like affects. And a person would be well advised to go with the direction of the energies, that is, to introvert. Jung says in Volume 5 that therapy must support the regression and to make the content of the depression, if, if we're depressed, there's usually something in our unconscious that's trying to pull us down in order to become, for it to become conscious. Something is trying to come up into our conscious life. So Jung says to make that content of the depression conscious, we must consciously regress along the lines of the depressive tendency and integrate the memories which are so activated and integrate them into the conscious mind. And that's what the depression is aiming at in the first place, according to Jung. And that's volume five. And of course, Jung wrote volume five when he was very depressed. So he knew very well what that was all about. Perhaps we should look at those slides of Dante before I go on. I've got an example here, but we should quickly just look at Dante and um, get him out of the way. This is um, the famous painting of Dante's Divine Comedy in the cathedral. We have the lights here. Um, this Dante standing with his book, The Gates of Hell, um, Abandoned Hope, Ye Who Enter In, uh, The Purgatorio, The Seven Steps, and then uh, The Heavenly Spheres. Okay, the next slide, please. It's a very quick run through the Divine Comedy. Here he is in the forest, a man who's lost his way, midway upon the journey of our life. I find myself within a forest dark. That sense of foreboding and that sense of having to go into the dark depths of one's own psyche. These are Gustave Doré's uh, engravings. Okay, next slide, please. Uh, this is Virgil and Dante. He, so when he got into the unconscious or into the forest, he met Virgil, who became a, a spiritual guide. We need a guide in our depressions, and I suppose that's why we go to therapists and we, we, do it, we, we go into this material with someone just to give us some... Uh, orientation about where we're at. But that's the inner guide, of course. Thank you. These are the instincts. He met the, the lion, the panther, and the she-wolf. Uh, often when someone gets into analysis, uh, the, they dream of animals and then all sorts of instinctual kinds of eruptions take place, aggressions and sexual acting out. And this is the kind of energy that, that gets stirred up that has to be kind of contained at this stage. Okay, the next one, please. <clears throat> the gates of hell, abandon hope, all ye who enter in. 
down there. Still this sense of depth going down. Okay, the next one, please. This is crossing the Acheron in the boat of Charon. Often we dream of boats and it's really important to have a vessel that has to be carried over the waters of the unconscious so we don't just drown in the material. We've got something that can hold our ego safely so that we can experience what we have to experience. Thank you. Another, um, another example of the, the boat the journey to the underworld. Thank you. This is the very depth of the underworld. It's interesting in our Christian uh, way of thinking about hell, we talk about the fires of hell, and certainly there are a lot of fires on the way down, but this is the very deepest pit of hell, and it's ice, and it's thick with ice, and there's the triple-headed devil with his bat wings. There's Dante and Virgil, right down in the cold, psychoid depths of the unconscious. And then they descend down um, Lucifer, down his body, and come out the other end in the, in the southern hemisphere, actually. Perhaps they... <laughs> uh, it's quite true. And perhaps the stars they saw on coming out, they, there's speculation they may have been, the, if Dante had have known about them, the Southern Cross, which is really interesting for us living on this part, in this uh, part of the world. Okay, next slide, please. Well, I've skipped an awful lot. Purgatory and... <laughs> Um, a lot more struggling, and that's the, uh, the Empyrean, the vision of the snow-white rose, the, uh, all the angels and all the saints in, in, a, in forming a rose around the Godhead. It's a symbol of wholeness that he achieved at the end of the whole process. He'd integrated the shadow, been through hell and purgatory, and then was able to have a vision of totality of the wholeness, or the God image, uh, surrounded by all the energies, energies of the cosmos. Thank you. What's the next slide? I'm not sure. Well, this is the night sea journey of the Egyptian sun. In, in Egyptian mythology, every night the sun god would descend down into the west and go under the ocean, this is all ocean, in the sun bark, and then come up the next morning renewed and refreshed, having faced the dangers of the night, all the, the snakes. And this serpent actually protects him, but there are other dragons and serpents that, that threaten his uh, well-being. That's the night sea journey, the famous night sea journey referred to so often by Jung. The next slide, please. That'll do, thank you. Can we have the lights again? And I'll, I'll... So we're talking about introversion that, that need to go down. Uh, and now I'd like to give just a few examples of what that means today. So we saw what it means for people in the Asclepian temples uh, we saw something of this uh, inner journey in, in uh, Dante's work. Now let's look at what it could mean today. There's one person here, a woman in her 20s, who'd got depressed after a few years of marriage, and the marriage seemed to be okay. Uh, it wasn't directly that. Uh, she had a good relationship with her husband and child, and, but somehow things weren't right for her. And she was having these dreams, a recurrent dream, of the river being dried up, or of rivers being dried up. She'd just be in this uh, desert kind of landscape, and there'd be a riverbed, but there'd be no water flowing in it. Or there'd be, she's in a barren landscape, it's a time of drought, and she's being chased by a rattlesnake, a desert uh, animal. 
Or she'd be in the bush and she'd feel very alone. So you've got three images there. Um, the, the river's dried up, the waters of life aren't flowing, there's no energy available for life. And she was really lethargic. There was no, she had no zest for life. And that's those rivers being dried up. Or she's in the barren landscape, the stagnation uh, that that sort of portrays, that inner image. A dream portrays our inner situation. Or being in the bush, it reminds us, uh, it's our version, I suppose, of Dante's uh, European forest experience. So it's, she went into this solitude, uh, she withdrew, well she couldn't help it, from her husband and children or child and she was overwhelmed with memories. One, well, there was one weekend where she was absolutely overwhelmed with memories from her adolescence. Uh, and in, during her adolescence she'd been very seriously ill and on the point of death and she got into these real fears of dying and anger at her parents for not talking with her about the fact that she was dying. And she, she had a disease actually from which she should have died and doctors didn't quite know how she got out of it. But she'd carried that around, that tremendous fear of death, and she needed to get back in touch with that. And the depression, the drying up of the rivers and the barren landscape was trying to pull her back into those memories to integrate them from her past. So they're not like an unconscious load that she carries in, in her life, but she can integrate them and make them part of her life. So these were memories and affects with, that she had to integrate. And gradually, once she'd been through that, ex that terrible experience, her energies returned to life and the rivers started flowing again. Or another example of a man with liver cancer. Um, and he had the following dream that, I'm on my way to my mother's. It's a dream now. But suddenly I find myself going down, way down, miles of shaft in an elevator somewhere in the Kimberley Mines which I feel, he says, are the richest, which are the richest minds in the world. It's the deepest I've ever been. We are going to see some excellent diamonds. That's a really beautiful dream. Uh, you know, his prognosis medically was pretty bad, cancer of the liver. Um, now, cancer has often been called the disease of civilization. It seems that tribal people and animals in the natural state don't get cancer. It's also been called, uh, they've done certain studies and they've found that a lot of cancer patients come out more extroverted than introverted. So it has been called one of those statistical kind of truths that you can't apply too rigidly as a disease of extroverts. Uh, that is a person who invests most of their psychic energy into the object, into outer life. So here the dream is counselling this man to introvert, to go down go down and they've used the image of the Kimberley Mines and to turn his psychic energies within and to come to terms with his inner life. You get this sense of depth and darkness which is reminiscent of the caves of uh, Lebediah and Asclepius earlier in the, the account. But the dream also has a very good prognosis, not medically but for his psychic development. It says that we're going to see some excellent diamonds. Now this would be the dream showing him the possibility of finding some indestructible and enduring values in his life and illness. Diamonds are hard. There's a sense of, you look at a diamond, there's a sense of pristine clarity about it. There's something really solid about a diamond, something very beautiful. It used to be good on the stock exchange, on the market, but it's no good anymore. But, but it still has these qualities of something very valuable and something very clear and very, so, very, very um, hard. 
So that's, that's the kind of thing he was looking for in his personality, with all the transition that was taking place in his life, something beyond that, something tougher than the vicissitudes of everyday life, something clearer and more beautiful than what he was suffering. And so it was a really good uh, dream in that sense. Meister Eckhart, to, to quote someone else along the way, just to sort of get a feeling for, for uh, where we've come from, uh, Meister Eckhart was a Dominican um, master of the spiritual life who lived from 1260 to 1328, so early 14th century, and he really is a master. You just listen to the way he talks. But on, on this kind of thing, on this, this, we're still talking about introversion, so just listen to what he says. He says, yes, it's a sort of a dialogue uh, under the um, heading of eternal birth, and he says, yes, truly, you could not do better than to go down to where it is dark, that is unconsciousness. Notice the word being used in the 13, 1320s or something. The, word, the German word is unwissen, unknowledge, just not knowing. And that's how Jung used the word unconscious, unbewusstsein, just un, the unknown part of the mind, which is certainly not empty or dark, not just dark. But then he said, then uh, continuing this dialogue, he says, so you couldn't do better than to go down where it's dark. And he says, but you say, alas, sir, does a man have to be alienated from creatures and always desolate? If a person is to be in such a state of pure nothingness, would it not be better for him to be doing something to make the darkness and the alienation more supportable? Should he not pray or read or hear a sermon? That's what they'd say in the Middle Ages. I suppose we'd say, should he not read a book or watch television or go to see his friends and do things? And Meister Eckhart comes across, he says, no. You may be sure that perfect quiet and idleness is the best you can do. For you see, you cannot turn from this condition to do anything without harming it. So we actually harm what is trying to happen in us if we resist the need to introvert, to go in to that darkness when the, the illness or the, the problem calls us within. So that's all I'd like to say about introversion. If there's any questions, don't be afraid to interrupt or all seems to be very much one-way traffic, but so if you feel like saying anything, please do. All right, now we could talk about the snake then. The, the snake symbol recurs time and time again in the context of sickness and healing. We've already seen some examples so far. Uh, Asclepius was a man standing there with a snake-entwined staff, or he often manifests himself as a snake. There's a really lovely story. Um, Back in, when was it, 291 BC, and Ovid reports it in his Metamorphoses. In 291 BC there was a plague in Italy and it was just decimating the, the Italians around Rome. And the Senate got together and debated as to what could be done about this dreadful plague that was just killing off the whole population. And so they decided to send someone to the Oracle of Delphi, Apollo's Oracle. So they went to Delphi and... Uh, Apollo said, no, you don't need me, you need my son, and that's Asclepius, and that's a bit nearer to home anyway. So go along to Epidaurus and ask for my son for some help. So they went to Epidaurus, and uh, the priests in the temple there said, oh, no, you know, we don't want to give our God away, and they were very difficult, being very difficult about it, and the Italian envoys were really quite worried, and that night, it's interesting, the Italian envoy had a dream. I'll just read the dream, it's only a short one. So 
So he says that the, when darkness had spread its wings, the health-bringing god, Asclepius, that is, appeared to the Roman envoy in his dream. He stood, Asclepius stood by the bed, holding a rustic staff in his left hand, stroking his long beard with his right, just as he is wont to be seen in the temple. Then he seemed to speak in gentle tones and say, Forget your fears. I shall come and leave a phantom of myself behind. Only look at this serpent that twines around my staff and mark it well, so that you may be able to recognize it tomorrow. For I shall disguise myself as a serpent, as my serpent, but I shall be larger and appear as mighty as gods ought to appear when they transform themselves. So the next, the next day, the Roman envoy went to the temple of the god Asclepius and the Therapeutoi, the, the uh, temple priests, were all in session and they were still debating about whether this could happen and whether they could possibly give their god to these Romans to take back to Rome. And next thing, this uh, enormous snake appears. Scarcely had they fallen silent when the golden god, disguised as a serpent with crest raised, crest raised erect, sent forth a hissing sound to announce his coming and by his arrival shook statues and altars and doors and marble and threshold and the golden gables. And so he halted in the middle of the temple and they said, all right, it's, it's the God, he can go, the God has spoken. So the snake made its way down to the ship of the Romans, got aboard and was taken all the way back to Rome. And, uh, and it's interesting to read the last bit. They went up the Tiber and those of you who have been to Rome will recognise these, these parts. So I can show you a slide of the present day uh, site of this. As, the as you go up the Tiber, the Tiber divides into two streams and flows around a piece of land which is called the island, the arms of the river stretching out equally on either side to embrace the land that lies between. The snake that was Phoebus, or uh, that's Apollo's son, left the Latin ship and betook himself to the island where he resumed his divine appearance, put an end to the citizens' distress and brought health to the city by his coming. And that's the... Uh, it's interesting, in Rome today, there's a hospital on that site. It's the Hospital of San Bartolomeo. And uh, I poked around it for a long time, but I couldn't find these things they say are down below. In the, they say that down below there's a pillar with a snake on it, but I couldn't find it. But it's actually the site of the Temple of Asclepius, um, and now the, uh, the place of, still a place of healing. I, I've so then we saw... That, that's Asclepius now and the snake. And then we saw the... Uh, the dark cave of ascent that they had to descend in, uh, descend into, I'm sorry, where the snakes were. Uh, I could just mention the rainbow serpent in Aboriginal mythology is also a healing uh, factor in the religious life of the Aborigines. The, 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 the Lord sent fiery serpents which bit the people and many people died and then the Lord said, make serpents of bronze. And he made the serpent, the bronze serpent and set it on a pole and the people bitten by the serpents were healed by the bronze serpent. So you've got that wounded healer, wounding healer, the snake again. In folklore, in fairy tales, you see the snake knows the secrets of the earth. Um, we're probably going long enough. I could tell a few fairy tales, but they'd take too long. Uh, it's also the conventional sign of the healing profession, the caduceus of mercury with the snake entwined around it. Um, the staff of Isis had snakes wound around it. Uh, she was the black goddess of healing. So, and, and symbolically, that would be the process of becoming conscious. As the snake winds its way up the pole, there's a heightening of instinctual consciousness. 
But the snake is also a living symbol of the psyche and occurs in dreams. Perhaps before we look at the dreams, we could just look at those slides now of this material on snakes. So if you're into snakes, you'll get lots of material here. To well, I just put that in again. We've seen that, of course. Uh, but there's the snake entwined around the staff of the bearded god Asclepius. Okay, next one, please. That's the, uh, the island on the Tiber, and that's the hospital of San Bartolomeo up here. Um, the Tiber goes each side of that, and it's called the Navicola, the little ship these days. And there's a bridge from where I took the photo. Okay. Oh, just Asclepius again, another statue. The snake entwined stuff. Okay. That's the. Um, that's to do with the Kundalini, I think. Uh, the Kundalini is another aspect of the the instinctual energies rising up and becoming more conscious, around the invisible yoni. So, uh, tantric symbol, right? Right, right. The lingam's invisible in that. That's right. It's a, actually a lingam of light, almost, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's just the, um, the seven chakras of the Kundalini, just following on that last slide. We, I don't think we've got time really to go into it, so we'll keep going. That's uh, from an altar in Pompeii. Or, no, sorry, it's in the cookhouse in Pompeii, actually. That's Isis, the goddess of healing. And see the two serpents again. And see the, um, instead of Shiva, this is Western mythology, of course, you've got uh, Harpocrates, the little uh, healing god who's found in, uh, as in the Asclepian story, it's Telesphorus, bringing the uh, accomplishment or the healing of the... Uh, when Telesphorus appeared, it was the end of the illness. That's Harpocrates in this one. Okay. Uh, there's the snake in the basket of Isis, sacred to Isis, it says. Again, uh, Isis is a healing goddess. Uh, the black goddess of healing and a serpent was uh, part of that healing process. The serpent was a symbol of the healing process, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, this is um, Laocoon, uh, a priest of Neptune at the time of the Trojan War, and he'd, um, he defended against the gods and against Neptune, and Neptune sent these two serpents to kill his sons and himself. That's one way of being... I, I put this in here as a... An example of being wrongly connected to the unconscious, where the unconscious becomes poisonous to the conscious attitude. And there's a there's a picture next uh, of that's been please yeah, that's been done by someone uh, some years ago, and who didn't know about that that statue by the way in the Vatican Museum. And this is a man who was struggling with his unconscious and just overcome uh, and in great confusion, uh, and had a, a negative. I mean, he cut off his instinctual life for so long, and when it did come. It was very negative and very confusing for him. But it's a similar kind of uh, image to the Laocoon. But it, basically it's a negative kind of relationship to the unconscious. Uh, and, and it's, but it's a transition phase through, through which this man had to go in order to find a more positive relationship to his instincts. Okay, the next slide, please. This is a more positive uh, relationship to the snake. See the snake there? 
This is one of Jung's drawings from the Red Book, you may have, noticed, you may have recognised. And it's done much, much later in his life. And uh, he's got a very... Po See how the, the instincts and all the fiery affects... There's a, there's a positive... The tree of life actually emerges out of the snake's mouth. There's a positive relationship. The energies of the unconscious can flow into conscious life and enrich conscious life. He's not fighting against the snake. He's at one with the snake and the snake can enrich his life so much. In, in the Tavistock lectures, Jung talks about being on, in right relationship with the snake. He said, for example, he was talking about Freud's theories, and he said, you know, when Freud said things, my snake just didn't feel right about it. I, I, you know, he said, I'd be neurotic if I had have agreed with Freud because my own snake, that is my own instincts, just couldn't buy it, you see. So I had to be true to my own snake. So Jung had a kind of a positive relationship to his own instincts, which he often accounted for very much from living on the land. He said, you know, we're, we're used to the animals and we live close to the instincts. And uh, he said that split wasn't so great. And he said that's why the, the whole sexual issue didn't become such a problem for Jung himself, he said. Um, okay, what's the next slide? We've seen that, yes. There's, a, there's another story that doesn't relate to that slide at all about the um, just relationship to snakes. Uh, the, uh, in, in Texas, in the Texan desert, there's uh, these rattlesnakes, snakes that, and they say that statistically American Indians just don't get bitten by them and yet a white man will go there and it means the death of one or the, if you meet a rattlesnake, you either get killed or the rattlesnake gets killed. And there's a, a man was doing research on this and he found out that there, it was because of the mental attitude, and it's got to do with our Western attitude to our instincts, uh, our white Western attitude. The American Indian grows up with these as, as brothers and friends, and he greets them and contemplates them. There's no fear, hostility. When we meet a snake, there's fear, hostility, and violence, and we, I mean, we panic and we want to kill it. Um, and, and that's part of the, and, and the snake somehow picked that up and would kill the, the source of that sort of energy according to this uh, particular writer. So I think that's yet another example of being in right relationship to our deepest instincts, the snakes. What, what's the next slide? Yes, that'll do for now, thanks. Can we turn this, the lights back on and the projector off? I'd like to give an example now of a snake dream and just what that meant. In, by the way, do you want to have a break, or do you usually have a break during talks, or are you have, if you're getting that way, that you'd like to move around a bit, or? Right. Okay. Well, so it's all right for me to keep going, huh? All right. Well, this is the dream of a woman. Um, just a bit of background on her: a young woman in her late twenties, who'd fitted in very much with everyone's expectations, whatever the cost and had strove to please, especially in the family, in order to get some affection. Her parents were very busy professional people and she did everything in her power to get the kind of affection she needed. But she did experience a dearth of people in her life who could relate to how she was really feeling. Uh, you know, if she ever tried to talk with anyone about her problems, they'd say, oh, but your parents are the most wonderful people. So they wouldn't quite accept what her feeling was and they'd relate to these parents, you know, very well-known people uh, in her environment, that is. So she got no affirmation for her feelings throughout her growing up. And she began rather inexplicably in her late 20s to harbour all sorts of resentments and angers, and which 
adversely affected her professional life, and that's when she sought professional help, or psychological help. The, and she had three dream images that I'm going to talk about. First one, an enormous black snake is coming out of my mouth. That's the first dream. It's a rather frightening dream. The second one, I'm entering the, uh, the woods and I'm following a dwarf and he brings me to a round table, a wooden table, and in the centre of the table there's a, there's a crystal. And while I'm standing there looking, I, I get frightened. I want to run away and climb a tree. But suddenly I find that there's, there's a basket in the centre of the table and next thing I'm in the basket with a snake. So there's a snake in the basket. The third dream, I'm in the analyst's office and it's full of snakes. I'm staving off an enormous snake, but the analyst says, let the snake bite you. Now, what we're looking at here is her own repressed, dark, instinctual reactions that she'd been cutting off for years are just issuing forth through the mouth. And that would be like the, the sort of, the way she was talking in the analytical hours, the anger and the resentment and the hurt and the pain. This is like the serpent coming out of the mouth. It's like a cathartic dream. In fact, at the time she also had a dream there was a tooth abscess and the poison was just pouring out of this tooth. So all that poison was poisoning her system and her psychic life and causing all sorts of symptoms in her life was actually now starting to pour out. She had to learn to let her very real and truthful angers out, the snake, follow her snake, even though as dark negative emotions. She had to let the poison out. In the second one, the uh, being trapped in the basket with the snake, a very frightening dream, she had to encounter these dark instinctual reactions at close quarters in the basket, deep in her own unconscious nature, in the, middle, in the, in the woods again. See, you've got Dante's uh, image there. She can't keep repressing them. She can't keep up the facade, the pretense personality. She has to get more deeply connected to herself. Because during this time she was socialising like crazy and... Um, you know, keeping up all these expectations and, and it just wasn't true for her. It wasn't her truthful self. She was completely split from her own nature. But the unconscious is also very positive there. You see the round table and the crystal. There's something hopeful in that. She could find some sense of nourishment in her own nature and some sense of, of clarity, like that diamond we spoke about earlier. And in the analysis, the third dream now, she's in the analyst's office and uh, the snakes are all coming at her a very painful time again the serpent has to bite her and I think that was what that slide was about there actually where the, slide, the uh, snake bites the man on the shoulder and then the God heals it sometimes for healing we have to be bitten by our instincts we have to suffer the negative side of what we're repressing in fact nearly always we have to consciously ex uh, suffer our own negativity or the truthfulness of our own, our own uh, instinctual reactions and this might offend and wounds us. It wounds the ego because the, the ego is far too puffed up anyway. The ego is a facade. It offends our good self-image that we'd have these dreadful, nasty thoughts. So it is that which wounds us that often eventually heals us. The problem that, that pulls us down in early life is often the, the thing that transforms us in later life. The illness that we, that we get is of, often opens us up to our fuller personality. And you see so many examples of this. We've had Moses, the, the serpents that bit the people in the desert and the, the bronze serpent that healed them. Apollo, he that wounds heals. And Parsifal in, the, in the, the Teutonic myths and Wagner's opera. In Wagner he sings, only the spear which caused the wound of Amfortas can heal the wound of Amfortas. And 
Parsifal brings the spear back and touches the wound and heals Amphotas. So the snake bite is often very necessary for healing. And I think that's why the analyst in that dream says, let the serpent bite you consciously. So Jung saw the serpent very much as the symbol of the world of instinct, especially those vital processes which are psychologically the least accessible of all. So then the serpent is a perfect symbol for the wounding healer. It wounds our ego, makes us feel wounded or depressed, pulls us down, but it brings about renewal and transformation, and thus it represents the god of healing, Asclepius. Go on to the third point. There's only two more now. One is the third one is the dream, and the last one is talking about the role of the healer in this whole work. Now you'll notice in the temple of Asclepius, uh, or in the serpent's cave, the patient would experience a healing dream or a vision or an oracle. Now, I think this touches on the very heart of psychosomatic medicine, which we are in the process of rediscovering today, but which they seem to know about uh, some 2,000 years ago. Now, just to revise our thinking about dreams, uh, according to Jung anyway, the dream is, the, is for Jung a product of nature, the empirical datum of the inner life. I was at a, a conference at Sydney University one day where there was all these, um, uh, all these people from all different fields and they were all debunking the idea of the unconscious and I thought the only thing one could really say, they are all saying they were empiricists and behaviourists and it was what you see is what you get, you know, and, and I was saying, well look, you know, what about dreams and uh, there's, you know, there, there's something there that happens uh, that uh, our ego doesn't seem to uh, do and uh, perform. And, uh, you know, of a morning, most of us wake up with a dream and, and the others of us that don't can, uh, it can happen if uh, they open themselves to that experience. And uh, there's some empirical side to the, this. The whole concept of the unconscious for Jung and Freud was a very empirical one. It wasn't just a, a philosophical. They'd taken it out of the world of philosophy where von Hartmann and Karras and some of the romantics were talking about it as a philosophical concept. But Jung and Freud saw it as a very much an, exper uh, an empirical concept. So, and he saw it then as a factual statement about the dream, sorry, as a factual statement about one's psychological situation, a true picture of our inner situation, the actual state of the psyche. Now, in this part of the talk, I should like to focus on dreams which accompany physical illness. And it's very important, I think, during times of physical illness, whether it's the flu or whether it's cancer, to be looking at what kind of dreams we're having. What does this illness mean for my individuation, for my development? What's happened? What's been constellated in my life at this time that I should go down with this particular physical illness? They often, the dreams often tell us something about the meaning of illness and the part it plays in our over, overall development. And it assists us in developing attitudes which are helpful and conducive to, to health in, the time, in time of illness. Jung says that every illness should be approached not only uh, should be approached from the psychological side as well as the medical side. But he's not saying, and nor am I saying tonight, that psychotherapy or analysis or anything else like that can cure physical illness. But it's a factor that we should be taking into account during any organic illness. Now, poetically, um, we could say that dreams are the voice and vision of the soul, and it's the soul that is man's organ of perception and connection to the gods or what we would call the archetypes that work in his depths. It's the soul 
that first feels and sees the smiting, on the one hand, the wounding, smiting, and the curing, healing hand of the God or the archetype, which is at the root of that particular sickness. And it's the soul that reveals these fateful events to the conscious mind through dreams. So that's a good reason why we should be looking at our dreams during time of illness. There's a German proverb that says that great events cast their shadow in advance. So we're not looking at dreams that foretell the future so much, but we're talking about things that happen within us. And when something's about to happen, it kind of casts a shadow in advance. And the dreams pick it up. And if we're really sensitive enough, we can feel that things are happening in us. Uh, and so we know well before the event that we're, uh, if we're sensitive enough, that uh, we're getting sick. But I know when I was in Zurich, I was doing analysis, and I thought, oh, with this analysis, you know, you'd never get sick. And I came down with a rather bad bout of hepatitis. And uh, we went, went back over the dreams, and it was there, but uh, it looked like a really heavy depression coming on. But it wasn't. It was uh, really an organic illness, and, uh, but we'd missed it. I mean, I don't know what I would have done if I'd have known anyway. You've still got to go through it, once you, at that stage. But that's an... Um, so I have an example from a woman who... Uh, I didn't mean to put that example in, it just came. Uh, there's a woman who uh, was, got cancer of the stomach and she, she died, um, she'd already died at the, at the time when her husband came to a man who was researching this sort of material and he said, look, you know, my wife just died of cancer and I'm convinced that the dream she had, at, you know, some six months before, had something to do, I think that was the onset of it. But he said, I've told people and they think I'm crazy. And the dream was this, that there are dogs... She woke up in the middle of the night, it was a nightmare, and she said, dogs are tearing at my stomach. And, there's a f and another dream was, my fire is burning my flesh. And he was quite convinced this is the beginning of the cancer. And then six, uh, some months later she was diagnosed as having uh, cancer of the stomach, and sometime later she died. And what the dreams are saying, that the inst her own instincts, her own dogs are attacking her, her own instinctual life... She's so um, cut off from it, you might say, that they're attacking her. And the fire is like her own emotional life is completely in turmoil, just like the cancer cells that took over. Suppose we could just look at a few more dreams um, about sickness, physical illness now, and dreams. This is one uh, not, not such a, a heavy illness. It was a young man in his 20s who was just beginning his professional life and uh, he experienced some severe lower back pain and it was diagnosed as a slight prolapse of the lumbar disc with minor reflex weakness in one leg. So he sought osteopathic help with success but he also sought some psychological help because he had a strange dream two weeks after the onset of the pain. And this is, now, it isn't always as clear as this and, uh, but anyway, here it is. The dream was, I'm in my parents' bedroom, he says. I'm on my hands and knees and I'm at the mother's side of the bed. My father is on my back and it's hurting and I want to get him off. I get really angry and I buck him off. And then a voice says at the end of the dream, this had to be done to get your attention. Now it's not hard to see that he would associate that image to the pain in his back, is it? I mean... He's on the floor, there's pain in the back in life and uh, his father's sitting on his back and it's hurting. So, so the, but the dream does something else with that back pain. I mean, he knows he's got back pain. That's not telling us anything. 
But the dream is associating his back pain with his problems with the parents. It's telling us about his psychological difficulties. In fact, the dream is also showing that he's rather infantile in his attitude. He's on all fours. We, before we go onto two, onto two feet, we get around on all fours. And so it's saying there's something infantile about his attitude to life. Uh, he's still living in the shadow of the parents. He's still reacting to mother and father. He's on the mother's side of the bed, so he's probably too close to the emo emotionally too close to the mother. Hasn't found his own emotional life yet. And the father, um, there's, there's some difficulty with the whole authority problem. That was clear from his life. Throughout his university life and his uh, professional life, he'd had a great deal of trouble with authority figures and teachers. So it was really the whole authority problem with the father on the one hand and the, uh, the kind of infantile, you know, look after me mother attitude to the mother. And he was emotionally dependent on the mother and was fighting every father figure that ever came into his life. So as he gradually faced these issues and sought to shape his own life more independently with, with greater self-reliance and develop his own inner authority, his relationship to his parents improved and his back pain never recurred. Um, oftentimes uh, chiropractors, as you know, can fix up one's back and then it recurs sometimes later. But this man actually did get rather a complete cure. So I'd say that Paracelsus has a really nice statement that um, where is it? when the spirit suffers, the body suffers too, for the spirit manifests itself in the body. And I think this man's spirit was suffering because of his immature attitudes to life and his body suffered also in the process in order to get his attention, as the voice said. So this is really... Some, uh, the very heart of psychosomatic medicine uh, that was prefigured and practiced in ancient Greece. And I think psychosomatic medicine involves much more than a recognition of the role of tension in our lives, which is what everyone starts talking about when you start saying psychosomatic medicine. Everyone starts saying, oh, we should relax more. Um, it's more than that, I think. It's, it's, it's more than tension that brings about organic disturbance in the body. I think it's a little simplistic, it's, but it can also be complexes in the unconscious that bring about our illnesses in order to get our attention. His mother complex and his father complex seems to have had, seem to have had some influence on the, the creation of those symptoms in his life. So there's a need, I think, to recognise relevant unconscious factors at work where they are at work. And here, of course, as I said, it's his father complex and his mother complex. Jung said that the... Um, the gods have become our diseases. He said, "If you want to, uh, um, the archetype, the, the where is it? The gods have become our diseases. Zeus no longer rules Olympus, but rather the solar plexus, and produces curious specimens for the doctor's consulting room." It's Jung's uh, way of putting it. Of course, the gods are, uh, you know, the, the archetypes, and when we're not in right relationship to the archetypes, they become destructive towards us. It's like um, at Troy when. Uh, you set off, you make sure you uh, offer sacrifices to all the gods, and if you miss one, you're in trouble. And uh, she'll get you, you know, is what, that's what happened, of course. And so if we're not in right relationship to our instincts or to the archetypes within us, they become destructive and negative and often comes up in a psychosomatic way because we're not conscious enough uh, to feel them psychologically. There's some dreams here I'll, I'll skip because it's getting a bit late, but I'd just like to... 
talk about some of Jung's last dreams. We're still on dreams now, and then we'll move on to the role of the healer, which is a very small section. Now, uh, there's, there, there is one I might mention here. A man, so these are a few cancer dreams and then Jung's dream. Um, just to give you a feeling for the healing work of the unconscious and how the, the unconscious is giving, can often give a message that even when the prognosis is really bad, a man who'd uh, had an unsuccessful operation for cancer had the following dream that he's in a, a green forest, very beautiful forest, a summer forest, and there's a fire raging which destroys the whole forest. And he's walking through this burnt out forest, feeling very desolate, and he finds uh, everything is black and in ashes. But in the midst he finds a big round boulder of red stone. And he thought to himself, isn't that amazing? The fire has not even touched or blackened this stone. Now, we've seen all these symbols before. The, the forest would be his own vegetative, unconscious life, and that's where he's, he's in that at the moment. It's destroyed at the height of its growth. It's a summer forest. It's not an autumn forest. It's not near the end of its life. It's a summer forest. So it's something destroyed, and, and this man was in his uh, late 40s, early 50s, so... So the life in him, the vegetative life in him was being destroyed at the very height of its uh, development. Uh, the fire would be the psychic energies uh, which have gone crazy and, and perhaps a reference to the cancer cells. But the, the most important thing there I think is the stone. Uh, there's some immortal, there's something indestructible, something indestructible in his being, an indestructible core in all this that's untouched by the cancer. Something will live on. Now just bear that dream in mind. We'll go on. Another dream of another um, person dying of cancer. Uh, I'll just give the, his last dream. He's at the beach with his wife and son in this very last dream. There's much to do. I can't do it all because the cancer will kill me. Now that was the first time the cancer had been mentioned in his dream. There was a dream previous to that where he just couldn't face it and he hadn't really talked about it. Now this dream, he's mentioned it. And then he says, the strange part of the dream, a stone will be made. It will carry me on for a thousand years. I am independent, but also dependent. The stone exercises influence. It was one of those dreams, you know, that you don't, you just receive it and you say, wow, what does all that mean? And, uh, but you can see what it's about. First of all, he's starting to, ex to face the prospect of, of his death, of the cancer. He's realizing that the time is short. I, I didn't mention the other dream, but it was something about the 11th hour, and, and he couldn't face up to what had to be faced up to. But now he's realizing the time is short. There were issues. He's with his wife and son. Um, there were issues with his wife and son that he hadn't really talked. He hadn't really talked with them about the fact that he was dying. He hadn't really talked to his son to, to just tell him about, about his life and just pass something on and make it conscious, that whole handing on process. And there were a whole lot of issues about the death of his daughter, which had happened some years before, which he had not discussed with his wife. So this is like the feeling that there's an urgency there. But you see the stone, isn't that that's something really beautiful? The idea of continuity and endurance. There's something indestructible in the personality that will live on. And that's what I'd like to bring us to Jung's final dreams, and then we'll talk about the role of the healer. Uh, the first dream that Jung had that seemed to give an inkling of his death was that he saw the other Bollingen in a glow of light and a voice said it's now completed and ready for habitation. 
And then he saw a mother wolf teaching her child to dive and swim in water. Now, Jung had often dreamt of the other Bollingen as he was constructing his own, the, the Bollingen by the lake at Zurich. And he, he always felt that, um, he was always dreaming, dreaming about this other Bollingen. He felt that was the Bollingen that was being built up in the unconscious, in the beyond, this special place in the other world. And so the dream's kind of saying, well, it's time for you to move into that other place in the other world. And the mother wolf is like mother nature, teaching one of her cubs how to survive in a different element, whatever the element of afterlife is. I mean, we have to use symbols to talk about this because we don't know. It, it's an unknown realm, so we use the language of imagery and symbols. So the mother wolf is teaching her cub, possibly Jung's ego, how to cope in a different element. And then his final dream, which you probably all know from... Uh, the Lawrence van der Post film, but I'll just mention it very briefly. He saw the big round boulder, you see, the boulder of stone again. And on it was inscribed, This shall be a sign unto you of wholeness and oneness. And then there was a square of trees, uh, and he could see the fibrous root, roots coming out of the ground and surrounding him, Jung, his ego, and there were gold threads gleaming among the roots. So there you see the stone again. It's like the work Jung had done on becoming whole, on becoming an individual person, was here presented to him at the end of his life, and, and he could move on with impunity to the next step, into the next life. And even the trees, he often used to say that uh, the trees are what we see, the uh, phenomenal world, and what's underneath is, is the rhizome, uh, what uh, endures, you know, what we are just a... Uh, transitory expression of life forces and so here he's getting in touch with those deeper life forces and he's seeing the the gold which is again uh, you know gold something you can bury and leave for centuries and it's still uh, it, there's something quite indestructible about gold so he's getting in touch again in the root of the roots of his personality with that indestructible aspect of the human psyche which is symbolized by the gold that that tremendous value in our depth that we're trying to bring more into life, to enrich our lives. Okay, now we come to the last section. Um, and it's the role of the healer. This is rather brief, you'll be pleased to hear. And there's just a few points I should like to make to, to pull it all together now. We've talked about the Asclepian account, and we've meandered through the ages and looked at an awful lot of imagery and symbolism. And we've talked about the need for introversion, the, role, the symbol of the serpent and what that means in dreams and collective symbolism. We've talked about the uh, significance of the dream in psychological, uh, wound, uh, psychological um, sickness or problems and in organic illness. And now we're going to talk about the role of the healer. Now it's clear from the Asclepian accounts that it's Asclepius the God of healing, who does the healing. Not the therapeuti or the attendants at his temple. They don't do any healing. It's a bit like uh, what uh, we often say, nature cures, not the therapist. Or George Grodeck, that uh, pioneer of psychosomatic medicine, says that nature heals, the physician cures. So people involved in the helping profession, no matter what aspect of the helping profession it is, are involved in, sorry, the people who are involved in the healing profession, they actually serve the power of healing or the archetype of healing, if you like. Or if we were in Greek times, we'd talk about the god of healing. 
So in psychological terms, we're saying we serve the archetype of healing, or in symbolical or personified, uh, as it's personified differently in each culture. So in Greek mythology, it's Asclepius. Among the Australian Aborigines, it's the rainbow serpent, also seen as a serpent, and also a healing god, or an ancestral hero. So modern healers, whatever branch of, of uh, healing they uh, work in, actually attend at the shrine of healing through the exercise of the skills uh, and the knowledge that they've acquired in their training. But I think there's a deeper dynamic involved in, in the work of a true healer. I mean, the techniques and the training and the knowledge, that's all very well, uh, but there's something deeper involved in the personality of a person who is working effectively in any of the healing arts, no matter what it is. And I think it's the it has to be the archetype of healing present in the unconscious of that particular person. And as we have seen, the archetype of healing is bipolar, it's ambivalent. It has the woundedness, the wounding, the wounded aspect and the healing aspect, the serpent that bites and also heals. Now, looking at Greek mythology, which we've done an awful lot of tonight, but there's one more I'd just like to bring to your, to your attention and unfortunately I've lost the slide for it. It's a really, it's really a pity, but the, it's about the, the centaur, the half-horse, half-human uh, form uh, of Chiron, who was a man uh, from the head, and, uh, at the head and torso, but had the body of a horse. And he was the first person in Greek mythology, reported in Greek mythology, to understand the use of herbs. And he's called the inventor of the art of healing. And he's the one that used to talk, you know, that's where you'd, um, uh, the gods and the, the heroes would bring their sons along to be uh, instructed in these things, in the art of healing. And Asclepius uh, actually learnt the art of healing from Chiron, the centaur. Now, Chiron was a wounded healer. He had been accidentally wounded by a poisonous arrow of Hercules. Hercules was fighting with the centaurs and he mistakenly shot uh, Chiron during this fight. And Chiron was incurably wounded and, and nothing could be done about it. So he became a kind of archetypal image and expression of this phenomenon of the wounded healer. Now, looking at a person involved in the work of healing, I think what that person has to do is embody in themselves, or what they normally do, is embody in themselves the healer-patient archetype, both sides of the coin. The person is drawn to the healing work often because of their own problems, whether they're conscious or unconscious. And they're often struggling with the opposites of woundedness and healing in themselves. There's a thing called medical student neurosis. You see it in um, wherever people are learning about uh, disease or uh, psychopathology or anything like that. You start imagining you've got all the diseases that you're uh, learning about. And um, I know I had a slight example. I mean, it's an example from my, uh, when I was studying, but uh, I, we were learning about heart disease. And I, um, I used to ride a motorbike in those days and I suddenly got this terrible pain across the chest. And I thought, oh my God, I've got... Uh, congestive cardiac failure, I'm on the way and so I raced off to the GP and uh, it turned out the pectoral muscle had been a little strained as I was pulling the motorbike around. But it's that kind of, that's an example of this medical, uh, I mean I wasn't a medical student at the time, but I mean, um, this kind of, that's the, an example of medical student neurosis. Uh, when you start imagining you've got all these diseases that you're uh, uh, learning about and you know, so 
psychiatrists and people in psychiatry go through the same thing with, uh, they start talking about themselves being manic or depressive or schizophrenic today and all this sort of thing. Um, now, I think already there, this medical student neurosis, I mean, it's a neurosis, right? It's an illusion. But the positive side of that is that the person is really struggling with what it means to be a patient. You see, if you think you've got something, you're, you're struggling with being a patient at that time. You're being a patient. You're, you're, you're being wounded. So you're already uh, at the mercy of one side of that archetype, the wounding side of the archetype of healing and uh, of, of illness. Now, in the field of depth psychology, just to come closer, we'll be talking about all branches of medicine, but in the field of depth psychology, Jung was the first person to demand the analysis of the, analysis of the analyst because, uh, and I quote Jung now, the analyst is just as much in analysis as the patient. For there are imponderable factors in both personalities which bring about mutual transformation. The analyst, he says at another time, must change if he is himself is to become capable of changing his patient or helping his patient to change. And then he says again, we have learned to place in the foreground the person of the analyst himself as a curative or harmful factor. What is demanded is not just his knowledge, but his own transformation. And he writes elsewhere, a man with a running abscess is not fit to perform a surgical operation. Again, he writes, the analyst can only take his client as far as he himself has developed, and he must constantly strive to meet his own therapeutic demand. Now, if a healer, in whatever branch of the healing arts he is, can hold together the opposites of woundedness and healing, he can constellate the inner physician in the patient, and this is crucial. If he can be at home with the patient in himself or herself, the patient can start to get in touch with the inner physician in themselves. So, and, and I think what this inner physician is, um, we could call it the healing factor. In physical medicine, it's something to do with the body's own vital capacity to promote healing. Or in uh, early um, psychoanalytic circles, they talked about the self-healing tendency of the psyche. If that didn't get going, it didn't matter what you did in, uh, in analysis. If the self-healing tendency of the psyche didn't get going, nothing would happen. Or we often also talk about the patient's own deep will to get better. But I don't just mean ego will, I want this, I want that. It's more the will in the Schopenhauer, uh, Schopenhauer sense, something deeper in the personality that wants to live. So, but if the healer splits the archetype in himself and identifies solely as the healer, then he leaves the sick person to identify solely as the patient, patient uh, passively receiving help. And the inner healer or the inner physician in the patient can't get constellated. So the doctor or the therapist's presence is important to constellate the presence of the inner healer in the patient. I knew that when that woman who dreamt of the snakes in, in the analyst's office, when she said that um, the analyst was saying that let the snake bite you, I knew that the analysis was working and that I was representing, because I was the analyst in the dream, I was representing the inner healer in her. Something was getting going in her that was guiding us both in the process. And what the I, in inverted commas, was saying in her dream was useful information for me, that we could go further and deeper in working on her complexes. And so 
to come to a, an end, we all know that a, a doctor can stitch up a wound, a naturopath can massage or prescribe herbal rem remedies, or a psychotherapist or an analyst can interpret a dream. But something in the patient's body and psyche must help too if the ailment is really to be overcome. And I suggest that this something is the inner healer or the God or the archetype of healing which must be constellated for healing to take place. And I might finish with a word from Mary Louise von Franz. She says that the whole goal of the work of analysis is to hand the analysand over to the care of the eternal healer or analyst who is within the person himself. Thank you. That's all I've got to say. Thank you for listening to Archetypes of the Wounded Healer, Terence McBride's in-depth exploration of the ancient Asclepian rites of healing that he beautifully connected with the ways in which Jungian psychology approaches well-being today. We hope you enjoyed Terence's talk and please feel free to visit us at www.jungsocietyofmelbourne.com or have a look at our Facebook page. Thank you.